Man, it is so good to be back with you. Uh, sorry we missed last Sunday, and uh, we uh, thank you for your prayers. We, had, we were out with COVID. Uh, our whole family ended up getting COVID, uh, and uh, if you're going to get COVID, get it at the same time, right? It worked out really well, and we're, we're all feeling very good now, all right? Um, so before there was the internet and there was Google, or uh, one of the more common ways that you would go find answers to your pressing questions was to go to your local library and ask the librarian. That sounds so foreign, doesn't it? To actually drive somewhere, to ask somebody a question, to ask a librarian. Librarians are like walking encyclopedias. They know everything. Do we have any librarians in here? Yeah, they're also sometimes a little bit introverted. They're not the ones who are going to yell out, yay for me, right? All right? Actually, they may not know all the answers, but they know how to help you find all the answers. The librarian knows where the answer is going to be among all the books and the, the magazines and the journals. Uh, any of you remember microfiche, using microfiche or, or microfilm? Well, the New York Public Library did a very interesting thing a number of years back. They created a phone number you can call to ask librarians your questions. The program is called Ask a Librarian. It was set up over 50 years ago. And would you get this? It still operates today. Even with the internet, they get over 30,000 phone calls a year. And let me say, sometimes the questions get a little bit strange. Just questions you would not think a serious person would ever ask a librarian. Well, over the years, the staff at the New York Public Library have started to write down their favorite questions that people ask. And I thought that I would share a few with you this morning. Is that all right? Um, here's one from 1947. <clears throat> What does it mean when you dream you're being chased by an elephant? Where would a librarian even go to get that answer, right? Uh, another one from 1976. Why do 18th century paintings have so many squirrels in them, and how did they tame them so they wouldn't bite the painter? In 1958, somebody asked for the nutritional value of human flesh. Hopefully they turn that question over to the police. <laughs> Uh, somebody in 1962 was looking for Charles Darwin's book, Oranges and Peaches. Okay, you don't have to be a librarian to know there is no Darwin book named Oranges and Peaches. Anybody know what book they really wanted? On the origin of the species, yes. All right, here's one last one that I'll show you. This is a phone call they got in 1945. This person asked, how do I put up wallpaper? I have the paper, I have the paste. What do I do next? Does the paste go on the wall or the paper? I've tried both and it doesn't seem to work. <laughs> Seems like even in 1945, you knew there would be a, a better place to ask that, maybe the hardware store, but whatever. Well, our team thought it would be kind of fun last week to call the New York Public Library ourselves and try out their hotline. Would you take a look at this? Hey, what's up, Crosswinds? What's going this on? This is Derek. I'm here with our brand new creative arts pastor, Sophia. What's up, everybody? And as you guys know, today we're talking about know-it-alls. And we thought, what is the ultimate know-it-alls in the world? Librarians. Librarians. Hey, so we sent an email out to all of our staff saying, send us your burning questions. So me and Derek are going to call the research desk at the New York Public Library and get some of these answers. Stay tuned. We're the New York Public Library Research Desk. Thank you for calling the Public Library. How can I help you? And the question is, uh, how do I politely tell someone that their breath always stinks? 
relevant. Okay. Emily Post. Emily Post, sure. Have the conversation in private. Focus on your friendship and your concern for success, not the problem. That's good. Listen to what they have to say and offer suggestions if you can. Uh, assure them that the conversation will remain completely confidential. Mm-hmm. And it says, you might say, Tom, I'd like to talk to you about a difficult issue. Uh, I hope if the situation were reversed, that as my friend, you would talk with me. Are you aware? This is, are you aware that you had body odor? That's awesome. Thank you so much. It actually really helped. Yeah, um, as an American, do I have to bow or curtsy to the Queen of England? What's expected there? You don't necessarily have to bow, but as a courtesy, British uh, citizens do bow to the Queen uh, of England. Hey, I just wanted to know a quick question. Is how do I know if I'm looking at a star or a planet? Oh, well, this is a simple one. The easiest way to pick out planets is to remember that stars twinkle and planets don't. Well, well, that's simple enough. Okay, I wanted to know, what is the collective noun for a group of pandas? If you called it New York Library, this is exactly the on-hold music you'd expect. Hey, welcome to the New York Public Library. Oh! Oh, oof, marron! You come to my daughter's wedding. (laughs) Don't want to look like an idiot when I'm teaching a class, you know, and say the wrong thing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know what I mean? No worries. I yeah. hate sounding like an idiot. All right, thank you so much for being so patient. You know, we have so many articles, but I just want to make sure it's coming from somewhere. You know, it's it's valid and credible. Yeah. So one moment. Yeah, for sure. I don't want to ask Jeeves. <laughs> yeah, there's different names. So one of them is embarrassment, which is interesting. Wow. They can be also also called a bamboo of pandas. And a clipboard of pandas. Can you sneeze in your sleep? Well, apparently, from what I'm seeing is you don't because of your brain shuts down certain functions. So if you did sneeze, it's because you're in a lighter state of sleep. Yes, I'm hosting a party, and I wanted to know where does the concept of charcuterie boards come from? Okay, chopped flesh, got it. <laughs> Pretty impressive for libra- these librarians knew this stuff. Um, although, is there anybody who believes clipboard of pandas is a real thing? There's no way that that's real. Now, as much as we might make fun of some of those questions in the program itself, here's what the head librarian told a reporter recently. There are no stupid questions. Everything is a teachable moment. And I love that. Actually, I think it's a refreshing attitude about people and, and their questions. Rather than being exhausted by them or, or feeling like certain questions are a waste of time, what a great outlook that they have. And I'll tell you, that outlook is not something we see a lot of these days. A person who feels like it's their calling to help you get answers. I think it's really wonderful. But I will also tell you, I am really surprised so many people take advantage of this program because it seems to me our world has far fewer question askers and far more answer knowers. And when I say that, I mean people who try to appear as if they know everything. 
my sophomore year of college, I had a guy on my floor uh, in my dorm who was a know-it-all. Do we all know some know-it-alls? Uh, people who claim to pretty much know everything. They like to dominate conversations and, and they offer unsolicited advice. Sometimes it's your family member who, who's over for a dinner party and as you're cooking, they're looking over your shoulder telling you the right way to prepare what it is you're making. Um, sometimes it's your college professor who, who refuses to accept ideas different than their own and, and they're sure that they have the one correct answer. Or it's your classmate who never stops raising their hand to every single question and, and even your teacher has started to ignore them, right? Uh, it could be your coworker who's actually doing their job wrong but is so confident they know what they're doing, they ignore feedback from everybody else. Know-it-alls can be anybody and I had one that was three doors down. My friends and I, uh, we would be discussing something as mundane as how much air to put in your bicycle tires. And, and he would butt in, oh, statistically, the right answer is 70 PSI. It doesn't matter what your bike tire says. Studies have found you want to go 70. Or, or we would be talking about these new things called compact discs that, that we're not supposed to scratch but they always seem to scratch. And uh, he would run up and he would get into a long speech about the coating on the bottom of the CD. And after a while, we just noticed there was no subject he was not an expert in. And so my roommate bet me $5. Chris, I will give you $5 if you can ask this guy a question he doesn't know the answer to. I thought, he is a know-it-all, but surely I can come up with something. He's not allowed to research it. He has to know the answer right then and there, or at least act like he knows the answer. So I thought, absolutely, I'm going to make so much money. Uh, we had to ask the question subtle. He could not know there was a contest going on. So we went up to him. My first question, what kind of jet fuel is in the space shuttle? This guy had an answer. I'm not sure that his answer was the right answer. Uh, this was pre-internet. Um, I, I couldn't go Google and see if he was right, but the contest wasn't about right answers. It was about whether he, he acted like he had an answer, and I lost five bucks. The next day, I thought, I got one. Hey, where are Cracker Jacks made? He had an answer. Stupid of me. I lost another five bucks. I thought, all right, I'm going to give this one more try. Third day, I asked him, where do we get hiccups? Where do hiccups come from? I have no idea what he said. All I know is I lost another $5. <laughs> and, and maybe the number one thing I learned in college is never bet against a know-it-all. Don't we all know someone who's like that? Well, my guess is that you don't think of yourself that way, but what if I told you every single one of us has a little bit of this in us, something in us that reeks of know-it-all? And here, just, just do a quick self-check. Um, I'm going to list some traits, and if you exhibit any of these, then you, like most of us, can be a know-it-all sometimes, okay? Are you ever argumentative? I mean that you can't help yourself from disagreeing and starting arguments with other people. Not all the time, but sometimes when it matters, okay, that's one of the traits. Are you close-minded to contrary viewpoints? Like when somebody disagrees with you, are you closed off to hearing why you might be wrong? Do you have a difficult time forgiving people who've wronged you? Do you ever feel a need to impress people? Sometimes impress people with your knowledge. Have you earned a reputation or do you want a reputation as a fixer? Is there any part of you that would feel lesser if people were to find out that you are wrong? Now, you don't have to have all of those traits. But if you have even one of those qualities, 
then you are discovering something right now as we sit here. You are learning about another fight that is going on inside of you, a fight over what you know. Or maybe a better way to put it is a fight about how you feel about what you know. The fight over trying to prove that you are knowledgeable, which is, which is what a know-it-all is doing, right? Trying to prove, the fight between trying to prove you are knowledgeable to everyone and, and something else that I'm going to tell you about in a few minutes. But what I'll tell you right now is that this fight, when know-it-all wins, it hurts you. It can make your spouse resent you. It can make your kids not want to talk to you. Your classmates avoid you. Your coworkers uninvite you. But maybe the most significant reason you cannot let know-it-all win is because it will keep you from becoming everything that God wants you to be. And today, I want to tell you that know-it-all is fighting something inside you that, that God has in store that is so much better. But to tell you what that is, let me show you the fight as we see it in the Bible. It's in Acts 8, and, and it involves a guy named Philip. Now, Philip was an evangelist. This is not the Philip who was one of the 12 disciples. This is a different Philip who comes just a little bit later. And at this point in Acts 8, Jesus has resurrected, and he's ascended to heaven, and his disciples are all going around, and they're preaching to people about Jesus as they're starting the church. But something has happened at the end of Acts 7, the beginning of Acts 8. Persecution has broken out in Jerusalem. And the leaders of the church are starting to be killed for telling people about Jesus. And so they run. And Philip decided to run to a city in Samaria and preach about Jesus there. Samaria, by the way, that's where all the heretics lived anyway. What I mean by that is the Samaritans lived there. And some of you know from the story of the Good Samaritan that, that these were people who had been rejected by Orthodox Judaism. Reason being, they had intermarried with other religions. They, they, kind of, they kind of believed in the God of the Bible, but they had a bunch of other religious beliefs that they had mixed in. So if you were going to get in trouble telling people about Jesus in Jerusalem, Samaria, pretty good place to go because anything goes in Samaria. Plus, Jesus seemed to really like the Samaritans. He told a, a good story where one was the hero, spent a lot of time with one, this woman at the well. So Philip decides to go to a city in Samaria. Now, take a look. Acts 8, verse 9. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention, and they, explained, and they exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. All right, there's a guy named Simon, and it says he practiced sorcery, which means he was a magician. Now, what, what does magician mean in ancient times? I have no idea. Um, would he come out and perform a flashy act to, to perfect magician music like the final countdown? I don't know. Was he the Chris Angel of his time, headlining shows in Las Vegas, levitating off the ground and maybe making people think he was doing something supernatural? Was he really doing things that were supernatural? I don't know. But what I want you to focus on with me is this line right here. It says, he boasted that he was someone great. Now, th think about this with me. What does that look like? H how does that play out in everyday life to boast that you're great? Does he walk around and call himself Simon the Great? Probably not. 
Um, does he open his sorcery sessions letting everyone know he's great? I'm about to pull a rabbit out of a hat before I do. Have I told you all how great I am? I doubt that. Simon, through his job as a magician, gives the illusion that he knows things. Secrets of the world no one else knows. Mysteries. How to make something else make something happen that nobody else can make happen. Simon is the smartest guy in the room. And it's very likely that in his everyday conversations and his everyday interactions with people, his tendency is to let people know that he knows things. Simon is a know-it-all. Again, we know that that means he likes to prove that he is knowledgeable. Show off his knowledge. And he gets to do it for a career. He doesn't have to say, I'm great. He can just kind of tell you through his sorcery by making sure you're aware of what he knows and what he can do and who he is. And it works. Because you, as you can see, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. Verse 11. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with this sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So people looked at Simon the know-it-all as Simon, the great power of God. But Philip gets to town and they start to hear about Jesus and they realize that Jesus is the great power of God. He is God. And they give their lives to Christ. They receive grace and, and they get baptized. Now, where do you think that this is going to go? Simon's going to get upset, right? All, all these people used to love me. Now they're following Jesus. And, and I didn't know about Jesus. And this is a threat to me and what I've built myself on. Because I don't know everything about him. And I know everything. That's what's going to happen, right? Actually, no. Verse 13. Simon himself believed and he was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and the miracles that he saw. It's all good. Simon gives his life to Jesus, too, and he follows Philip, and, and he is astonished. All is well until two of the original 12 disciples, Peter and John, hear that Philip is leading Samaritans to Jesus, and, and so they come to town to check this out. And when they get there, they place their hands on the heads of the new believers, and they pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit. And the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit enters these Samaritans just like the Holy Spirit entered the Jewish people back in Jerusalem when they gave their lives to Jesus. This amazing thing happens where the disciples lay their hands on people, and the Holy Spirit enters their lives. Now, real quick. Sometimes when we, we read a passage like the one I just told you about, um, somebody will think, wait a second, I never had anyone lay their hands on me and, and pray for me for the Holy Spirit to enter my life. Does, does that mean that hasn't happened for me? And in fact, I'll tell you, there are some Christians in some churches that would say that that's true, that in fact, you need a moment like this where somebody lays their hands on you and prays for the Holy Spirit to enter your life. And they would point to passages like the one we're looking at in Acts 8. Now, let me tell you what I believe. Um, while there are a few moments like the one we're looking at in Acts 8, there are many more moments in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit enters someone's life as they receive God's grace and they begin following Jesus. That the gift of the Holy Spirit comes with you giving your life to Jesus, not at a separate event. That that is the norm we see more of in the Bible, not the disciples show up at your house, knock on your door, lay hands on you. 
I'll tell you there are other reasons I, be, I believe that in addition. Um, we don't have time for me to go into them all right now. If you want to hear them and what they mean for you, come ask me afterwards, because I want to get back to Simon the Know-It-All right now, okay? But back to the story. Peter and John come to town. They pray for the Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit. They do. And look at what our know-it-all Simon does. Verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. And he said, give me also this ability that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Whoa. Simon sees this Holy Spirit thing as a tool to be harnessed. He sees the ability to give people the Holy Spirit as a thing to use to impress people. And he says, can I buy that from you? And let's stop right there because this is good. Simon thinks of himself as the greatest. He boasts about what he knows, what he can do, and he sees this as something he can do to be even greater, even more knowledgeable. And what we see in Simon is this thing that I've been telling you today that so many of us have battling inside us. This need to prove or be seen as somebody who knows things. Simon and you and I have this lie that keeps getting repeated in our brains. I must appear to others as if I am knowledgeable, smart, and I have all the answers. There is something in us that doesn't just want to be right. It's okay that you want to be right. I want to be right too. No, this is different. This is the need for others to know that we know. And that is not so healthy. You, you want to know why? Because it means that your identity is wrapped up in how you appear. And for me to feel good about me, I must know that everyone knows that I am knowledgeable, smart, and have all the answers. Um, last Sunday, I was home with COVID. Uh, Andrea had it. Kennedy had it. Um, I, I wish I could tell you that we were asymptomatic. Uh, we all got sick. I got sicker than the rest. But uh, Sunday, I was feeling better. Still couldn't be here. I was in quarantine. Um, so watch the Crosswind service on YouTube at 1030. By the way, there were lots of other people watching it live online with us. And I feel like I should say hi to you. Um, I feel like I do a terrible job acknowledging you every single Sunday. So hey, you watching in your pajamas with a Bloody Mary and a ham and cheese omelet. Hope you're enjoying today. Um, anyway, when the service was over, I decided I was going to watch the Rams-Buccaneers game so that I could see who was going to play the Niners this week. And, and uh, for Christmas, I got one of these things. Um, in case you can't tell, that's not me. Um, I wear it way cooler than that. Uh, no, that is a virtual reality headset. Well, I, I wanted to watch the game with people, um, but my wife and daughter have no interest in watching football, and so I had a great idea. Uh, there is an app for my headset that allows me to enter a movie theater with hundreds of seats and a giant screen virtually in front of you and watch something with a crowd of up to like 15 strangers. And I thought, surely I will find somebody in a theater who is watching this game. And so I, I sat down on the couch, other side of the room from Andrea, and uh, she turned on Call the Midwife or some <laughs> British show that's equally boring. And uh, I put on my headset and I found a theater with 14 strangers watching the football game. And Andrea and I sat together, but nowhere near together in a spiritual sense of the word. 
Okay, I'm watching this game, and the thing about watching it in a virtual theater, you can talk to the people in the theater around you and have these conversations. And the guy to my left in the theater, he's a real talker. Now, I don't know if you saw this game, but the Rams looked like they had it locked with like four minutes, 30 seconds left in the game. They were up by 14. Um, things were going their way. But Tom Brady, the quarterback for the Buccaneers, there's no lead against Tom Brady that is safe, no amount of time that I'd be ready to say he can't stage a comeback. Nevertheless, the guy in the theater on my left says, this game is over. It's done. I say, um, I wouldn't be so sure, man. Uh, Tom Brady, you know? He says, no, I know football. This game's over. It's done. Done. Kept saying done like that. Um, wouldn't you know, the Bucks got the ball back in 36 seconds. Tom Brady took it 77 yards for a touchdown. Now, Brady is only down seven at this point, and there's still a little over three minutes left in this game. So I turn to the guy on my left, and I click on my microphone, and I say, hey, look like this, looks like this game just got close. And he says, no, 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 it's done. It's over. He can't do that again. There's not enough time. I say, dude, I would not count Tom Brady out. Now, the Rams get the ball back, and on the second play, they fumble, the Buccaneers recover, and now Tom Brady has the ball again on the Rams 30 with 2 minutes, 25 seconds to go, which is all the time in the world in football to go 30 yards. And I say to the guy on my left, hey, are, are you still sure that it's done? <laughs> he says, Brady has no timeouts. They're going to screw this up like the Cowboys did last week. The game is over. I said, let's just let it play out. Okay, in 1 minute, 40 seconds. Brady drives the 30 yards, Buccaneers score another touchdown, and they tie it up. The guy on my left is like, no way, no way. He's angry at me. He's angry at the refs. He's not even a Rams fan. He's just angry that he was wrong. And what I wanted to say to him was, what is your deal? Where is this coming from? I wanted to say, what is it in you that feels like you had to prove to a room full of strangers that you know football better than us? And right when I was about to say that, the Rams used the final 40 seconds to score a game-winning field goal, and he gloated, <laughs> and everyone left the theater. And what I realized is that he is all of us. We, we are all people whose identity, our sense of who we are, is wrapped up in what we know and in showing people what we know. And that need in us, it drives people away. That's actually what happens to Simon. Um, Peter says to him, may your money perish with you because you thought that you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Now, let me show you the better thing inside you that is fighting this thing that is constantly trying to prove your knowledge. Verse 26 now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, right in that moment, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. So Philip leaves the Samaritan city he's in. He starts going down this desert road, and he runs into a man. This is an Ethiopian man who works for the queen. And the man is sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah. Verse 29, the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot, stay near it. So Philip ran up to the chariot and he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. And Philip asked him, 
do you understand what you're reading? Like, does it make sense to you? Do you understand it? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? How can I unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come and sit with him. And this is the passage of scripture that the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The Ethiopian asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about in this thing that I'm reading right now? Is he talking about himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture. And he told him, the good news about Jesus. Now, for the sake of time, I'll just tell you what happens from there. They keep traveling along the road together, and the Ethiopian sees some water, and he says to Philip, what can stand in the way of me being baptized right now? And Philip baptizes him right there, and, and that's that. And I don't think it's a mistake that we read about Simon the Great and then the Ethiopian back to back in the same chapter each of them having a very different interaction with Philip because I think each of them represents a different side to this fight that is going on inside us. You can be Simon, who must appear knowledgeable, smart, and like you've got it all figured out, or you can be the Ethiopian who's okay with appearing like he has some things to learn. See, the other option in you is to choose to let other people see that you are teachable and curious. What if you didn't have to spend your life trying to show people that you are the smartest person in the room or that you have it all figured out or even that you have anything figured out? What if you could let your spouse know that you're teachable and your kids know that you're curious and your friends and coworkers know that you are humble and what if God does much more work in the person who says, I don't understand. Somebody, please help me understand, than the person who will do anything to hold on to the appearance of greatness. What if you choose a life of curiosity? This is the fight inside you, to know it all or to know what you don't know. Actually, somebody much smarter than me once said, all information in this world falls into three buckets. What I know, what I don't know, and what I don't know, I don't know. Let me say that again. What I know, what I don't know, and what I don't know, I don't know. And you, you can either spend your time hanging out in this space, the what I know space, and maybe let that feed your ego. And maybe let that drive people to call you great. Or you can spend time in this questioning space that the Ethiopian was in. I don't know what this means. I, I don't know. I haven't got this figured out. And that tells me that I probably don't even know what I don't know. And I'm open to what God might show me there. You can be a know-it-all or you can be teachable and curious. You can ask questions. You know what? We can be a church of know-it-alls. How annoying would that be? Or we can be a church of people who are teachable and curious and ask questions. And Crosswinds, that's that church people go to who don't have all the answers, but they're trying to figure it out. 
Which one of those are you? A know-it-all or curious? Which one would your family say you are? A know-it-all or curious, teachable? What would your friends say? The people that you work with, the people you go to school with, would they call you humble or would they say you're more like Simon the Great? Do you want to prove you're curious? Let, Let me give you the first question to ask. Ask somebody close to you this week, which one of these am I like? A know-it-all or teachable? And then listen to what they tell you. And, and this week, commit to asking more than answering. Let me close with this. A few years ago, a 114-year-old woman named Anna Storer got to be 99 for the day. She got to be 99 because she wanted a Facebook account. And at the time, to create an account, you had to have been born before 1905. Um, Let's just put that into perspective. She had seen the birth of plane travel, the beginning of mass production of automobiles, not to mention all the ships and technology. She even had an iPad that her 85-year-old son gave her. But she had to lie about her age and pretend she was 99 to sign up for Facebook. Her son said this about her. She's been curious about everything all her life, and she continues to be curious about it. Even at the age of 114, she was still curious about Facebook. When she passed away later that year, she even had 32 new Facebook friends. (laughs) Okay, you were made to be curious. Not to know it all or appear like you've got it all figured out, but to ask questions. Curious until the day you die. It's okay to live showing people what you don't know. Even asking them to tell you what you don't know that you don't know. It is in your curiosity and and your teachableness that God makes you new. Would you stand with me? Let's close together in prayer. Heavenly Father, Thank you for making us a people of questions. God, thank you for making us a people of curiosity. God, thank you for being a God who does not judge us on what we know, but instead comes alongside us and says, I want you to be people who are searching and questioning and wrestling and asking. And God, I ask this morning that as we do that, you would honor it and you would show us you. And all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for coming today. We'll see you next week.